Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. I'm your host, Jill Miller. Today, our guest is Dr. Claw, who is a professor of anesthesiology, medicine, and psychiatry and is a director of the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. After receiving his medical degree from the University of Michigan Medical School, he subsequently completed his residency in internal medicine and a fellowship in rheumatology at Georgetown. Dr. Claus serves in various capacities at Georgetown, including vice chair of medicine and director of Georgetown Center for Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research, before returning to the University of Michigan. There he has served as the first Associate Dean for Clinical and Transitional Research and the founding director of the Institute for Clinical and Health Research. Dr. Claw has authored or co-authored more than 450 articles and his group is best known for work showing how the central nervous system contributes to pain processing in conditions such as fibromyalgia interstitial cystitis, low back pain, osteoarthritis, and endometriosis. Dr. Claw, you're a man of many talents, it seems. <laughs> so thank you for joining us to talk about pain related to uh, spondyloarthritis and other diseases. Uh, welcome. Thank, thanks for having me. So I'm going to dive right in. Uh, your experience is fascinating, but what are what are the most common types of pain experienced by people with spondyloarthritis? Well, the, the classic kind of pain that all individuals with all autoimmune diseases start with is what's called nociceptive pain, that the pain is occurring because there is some inflammation or damage or um, in the case of uh, spondylitis, uh, sometimes fusion, uh, you know, of different areas of the body. So that pain is occurring because there's something wrong in the area of the body where the person's experiencing pain. There's always been a second kind of pain that we've known about nerve pain or neuropathic pain, but the new revelation in the last 20 years or so that our group has had a lot to do with is this third mechanism of pain that is front and center in conditions like fibromyalgia. This used to be called central sensitization um, or centralized pain, and those terms can still be used. Um, the new scientific term for this third kind of pain is nosoplastic pain. And what this all really means is that that kind of pain, even though someone feels the pain in their knee or their elbow or their neck, the pain is ultimately coming more so from the central nervous system that these nosoplastic pain conditions like fibromyalgia um, are really, uh, the pain is really being driven by the spinal cord in the brain rather than some problem in the area of the body where the person's experiencing that. Interesting. And it's, uh, but it's always been, it's always been a, a type of pain we're just learning more about how our bodies act as a system and where some of those i don't know if you'd use the word feelings or feelings of pain come from yeah i mean this is when i say new obviously it's not new it's newly discovered newly recognized and 
people with conditions like fibromyalgia, you know, used to be told there's no such thing. It's all in your head. You're making this up. And we could see on functional brain imaging, they weren't making this up. But now we know that probably a third of patients with, uh, you know, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, any other autoimmune disease, a third of those individuals will have the same kind of pain that we see in conditions like fibromyalgia. And it's often not recognized by either them or their rheumatologist or their provider because the label they have of ankylosing spondylitis, for example, implies that all of their pain is coming from that condition, from the um, ankylosing spondylitis, that there's inflammation of the spine and of, of articular structures. Um, but, but again, we know that it, upwards of a third of individuals with any autoimmune disease will also have this other type of fibromyalgia pain. And it's important that people and providers recognize that when someone has that other kind of pain. So you're hitting, not no pun intended, you're hitting a nerve for me, <laughs> talking to many, 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 mostly women, not all women. Uh, this idea of it was all in your head and it's really not pain as you go through the journey toward diagnosis is, is pretty common from what I, just what I hear out there talking to people. So I think it's, it's wonderful that we're starting to see the, it's not, it's, it's not all in your head. It's actually real and it uh, affects your life. Uh, but what are like, what are the challenges you see for people managing pain when they have uh, spondyl arthritis or a condition that's uh, associated with it? Well, the first thing is understand what pain mechanisms are operative in you or you know your provider can do that as well but somehow you have to figure out if you are one out of three people with um, ankylosing spondylitis or any other autoimmune disease that has this other kind of fibromyalgia like pain and the way you can tell that is that you're going to have pain in areas of the body that are not typically affected by ankylosing spondylitis and the other thing that we see in individuals with this kind of pain, this nosoplastic pain, um, is they have sleep problems, fatigue, and memory problems that co-occur with the pain. And going back to the analogy that I used earlier is that you, you have to use drug and non-drug therapies to turn down the volume control setting. It literally is like these individuals have a higher volume control setting in their brain for all kinds of sensory information. Because individuals with conditions like fibromyalgia or this fibromyalgia-like pain coexisting in someone with spondylitis, these individuals will be sensitive to the brightness of lights, the loudness of noises, odors. Um, and that's really telling us that, you know, your brain, the, the amplifier in your brain is set higher and you're more sensitive to any kind of sensory stimuli than, you know, someone else that doesn't have the same problem. And, and that, that's, again, why a lot of the treatments are really aimed at, if you will, sort of turning down the amplifier, turning down the volume control in the central nervous system. I like the way you put that. I think of like the equalizer, right, in our stereos and all the little pushing things up and down. Uh, so what, when people do have had the opportunity to identify where the pain, what, what kind of pain it is, uh, <clears throat> what are the options that someone would have available to them for the various types of pain in particular? And I think also the 
uh, I'm going to maybe not say this correctly. Uh, is it not the nociceptive, the other pain? No, it's plastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, for nociceptive pain, the kind of pain that occurs, you know, front and center in spondylitis, people sort of know what the treatments are for that. You know, the non-steroidals, the disease-modifying drugs, the biologics. Um, again, I think both patients and providers are very comfortable once they get that diagnosis with those therapies. What a lot of providers and a lot of patients are a lot less familiar with are the types of treatment that work for this other kind of pain, this nosoplastic pain. And the drugs that are going to work, first of all, are going to be drugs that were originally developed as anti-seizure drugs or antidepressants, drugs like um, gabapentin or pregabalin, which are called gabapentinoids, drugs like um, duloxetine, which is a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, but a, a drug that was originally developed as an antidepressant, but also can be really helpful in this kind of pain. Um, and so the first thing is that the pain drugs that these people use will be not non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and acetaminophen or Tylenol. They'll be using things like, again, gabapentin, pregabalin, duloxetine, um, flexoril uh, as drugs that are the, the core drugs they're going to use to help sort of turn down the amplifier setting. The, but the non-drug therapies are particularly effective in these nosoplastic pain states. And so a, a lot of times we're really recommending that people um, first get more active. Um, I, I don't use the word exercise in talking to patients because often patients will find that term threatening. Um, but get more active, get sleeping better. Um, uh, and again, things like acupuncture, yoga, tai chi, mindfulness, all sorts of non-pharmacologic therapies that we've come to understand can be really helpful in all pain conditions, but especially these nosoplastic conditions. When you're talking about the pain management options, uh, and I know people who've gone through this where they'll say, I was in all this pain, I went in, I ended up taking, you know, I ended up getting some morphine, it didn't help, but I learned how to med meditate through the pain. Uh, some people th don't think it's possible, I think, to meditate away pain, or but does that actually, that's effective for some people, depending on their situation? Yeah, I probably wouldn't say meditate it away, because that's a little bit dismissive and a little bit oversimplistic, but meditation certainly is one of the 15 or 20 non-drug treatments that can be really helpful in people with chronic pain. So, and some people will find meditation, mindfulness to be extremely helpful. Other people will find it to not help at all. Some people will find acupuncture, yoga, tai chi to be helpful. Some people will find those not to be helpful. But I, I think the most important advice for people in chronic pain, and especially if they have come to believe they might have this other mechanism of pain, is just keep trying new non-drug therapies, is that it, it really is important. I can't I can't or we can't as a field tell um, if Mrs. Jones is going to respond to acupressure or mindfulness-based meditation or cognitive behavioral therapy or physical therapy. Um, but we do know that all of those treatments are effective in groups of individuals. And we know that the best thing we can do for Mrs. Jones is keep her trying new treatments and, um, until she finds the ones that really work for her. 
and then keep doing those. The, the sort of disadvantage of the non-drug therapies is they're more difficult, if you will, for patients to adhere to because they take time and, and effort and everything for people to do these things. But they're, they're also less expensive and they have a lot less side effects than some of the drugs as well. So we, we, get, we really are trying to encourage people more and more to try these non-drug therapies and try them for several weeks. And if they help you keep doing it, if they don't help you move on to the next non-drug therapy, you don't know which one might be really helpful for you. Uh, and I agree. We're all really, really unique human beings. So we have to find the right sort of fit the right puzzle pieces together. Uh, but in terms of, you mentioned side effects, what are for the uh, treatment that is, uh, I guess we'll call it pharmacological, uh, what kind of side effects do people see most often? Well, each of those classes of drugs that I mentioned sort of has a different side effect profile. The drugs like duloxetine um, will, can cause people to be nauseated, especially when they start taking the medication. Sometimes people feel a little bit jittery, have trouble with sleep. Um, but often that drug and drugs like it um, those side effects last for a week or two and then get better or even go away. Um, but certainly if someone continues to have those side effects, then they really shouldn't be taking that drug or any drug that causes them to feel bad. Um, the, the drugs that are considered gabapentinoids, pregabalin and gabapentin, which also go by Lyrica and Neurontin, um, those drugs cause people to be drowsy, um, can cause weight gain and um, a subset of individuals. Some people feel that their thinking is cloudy. Um, and so, um, again, we can try to mitigate against those side effects by, for example, just taking a single dose of the drug at night, um, where it's helpful, actually, if, um, the, if the uh, drug sedates the person and helps them sleep better. How do we advocate for ourselves when we do need pain medication? Um, versus trying different treatments. Uh, how is that handled by the community that is taking care of people with chronic pain? Well, first of all, I, I, I'll push back a little bit on, and, and it's not like you're the only one that does this. Most people um, conflate pain medication with opioids um, and, or mm -hmm. narcotics. And, and that, that the first thing I would say is there's not a lot of evidence that um, opioids work well to treat chronic pain. So the reason that I and many people in the pain field don't like use, people using opioids to treat chronic pain is they simply don't work very well and they cause a lot of side effects, including killing people. So, so, I, yeah. so I wouldn't use the word pain drug synonymous with opioids. I, um, I think anytime if you're not getting pain relief, then you should go to your healthcare provider or providers and tell them that and ask them what the treatment options would be. But in many cases, the non-pharmacologic therapies might be more effective and safer um, than any, uh, if you will, pain drug, and certainly than an opioid pain drug. Um, and so I just wanna encourage people to think more broadly when they're having pain or when they're in distress, then the only solution is me getting an opioid or a narcotic analgesic, because that's a really slippery slope, is that once people start down that opioid 
road. It's super hard to get off the opioids. And there's a lot of side effects and problems that are not at all related to addiction that are associated with taking opioids chronically. I like that approach. Uh, so we talked a little bit about some of the complementary therapies. What about like physical therapy? Do you, do you see the pain reduction in people who are uh, getting the right treatment in terms of like the physical therapy side of things? I'm a huge advocate of physical therapy. I think that physical therapy and physical therapists can be incredibly helpful for chronic pain patients. Um, I, the, the one thing though that I, I do recommend is that um, if people go to a physical therapist, use a physical therapist, ask that therapist to help you, help teach you exercises you can do, things you can do to integrate into your day-to-day -day life so that you then are sort of managing your pain more so on your own. We sort of break down sending people to a physical therapist for passive therapies versus active therapies. Passive therapies would be you go to a physical therapist and they put on a heating pad and they do massage and they do this stuff to make you feel better, but it's only going to feel better while they're doing it. It's not. And that I'm not crazy about that kind of physical therapy, um, but I love the physical therapy where the therapist evaluates people, you know, helps them to try some different exercises and works to develop a exercise routine or a stretching routine for that individual that they can use at home uh, as a, a self-management strategy. That latter use of the, the sort of more active use of physical therapists is what most of us that um, take care of chronic pain patients recommend. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that approach. I, and I have to agree because most of us only have a limited number of physical therapy appointments we can do per year, um, depending on our insurance or uh, program and to leave empowered to take care of your pain um, and to manage it on your own, I think is really important. Uh, so in terms of, I guess, in that same vein, what lifestyle changes can people make to help with pain control? The first two things are become, try to become more active. I, I again, I, I really don't hardly ever use the word exercise when I'm talking to a pain patient because they appropriately find that threatening. Um, but, it, but I think most people understand how they can become more active and, and that really is important is if we're inactive, our pain gets worse, our fatigue gets worse, a lot of symptoms get worse if we just sit around all day and don't move. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're an astronaut or you're in the middle of a COVID pandemic or you're a spondylitis patient, if you don't move, you, you feel bad. Um, with respect to sleep, we really learned a lot about how important sleep is for pain. And so um, people really should, if they especially if they have this nosoplastic fibromyalgia-like pain, they really should work on their sleep. Um, start with what, you know, if you do an internet search would be called sleep hygiene. You know, not, not drinking alcohol a couple hours before bedtime, not exercising before bedtime, don't use your screens before bedtime. Those are simple things, but at the other end, of, there is actual cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that's been shown to be just as helpful for chronic pain patients as cognitive behavioral therapy for pain can be for pain patients. So um, attend 
um, almost as aggressively to the chronic pain patients sleep as you do to their pain, because if you can make them help them sleep better, get really good, deep sleep, um, often their pain gets better, their fatigue gets better, their memory gets better, and you can help them sort of spiral upward instead of spiral downward. I like that approach. Uh, the uh, And we did a, a whole episode on sleep and it was fascinating as we walked through like how your body kind of heals itself, right? When you're getting enough sleep and uh, it can be a significant contributor to feeling better. Uh, what about stress and pain, especially in that nosoplastic side? There's no question that stress makes pain worse and pain makes stress worse and it's uh, bi-directional, they feed into each other. <clears throat> but I push back a lot scientifically when people, you know, imply that, you know, all chronic pain patients have significant psychological problems and in the individuals with chronic pain that have psychological problems, I think that a lot of the data is showing that the psychological problems are due to having chronic pain. And if you just make that person's pain better, they, they, they're less anxious, they're less depressed. And so um, it's really important in any chronic pain patient to try to work on reducing stress as well as, you know, individual that you know with chronic pain is depressed or anxious or catastrophizing. It's because of the pain that the pain is causing that. And, and so target the pain rather than target because if someone is depressed because they hurt all the time, you generally find they're not going to respond very well to, you know, like an antidepressant drug because it's more of a reactive depression. It's more of a situational depression and you want to get them out of that situation if possible, rather than try to give them a drug that in some way is going to mitigate against that. Yeah, I know there are a lot of, it is a cycle. Probably the host has been through that cycle um, and it's a difficult, it, it is difficult. And I think that you hit on it, like with the support of family and friends that, and providers that when you feel understood and heard that you might be able to get out of that faster. Feeling supported generally, I think helps get through the beginning pieces of that for people. Um, when someone shows up uh, in a pain clinic or with their traditional, uh, with their rheumatologist, how, how is the best way to communicate what's going on from a pain perspective and, and what you as the patient think you need? I know there's, sometimes I do think people don't feel hurt around their pain, uh, but what is the best way for someone to walk in and communicate what they're needing or what they're feeling? Well, the first thing is um, try to explain that complaint there's really hardly anyone that I know that likes to hear other people complain, and that would include your healthcare providers and your spouse. Um, and so if you can explain what's going on, uh, you know, without it having all the affect and all the distress, it, 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 that's going to be helpful. And, and, I, and I get that some of the things I say are more difficult to do in reality than to talk about, but it is it comes off entirely differently if you're sitting across the exam room from someone and every visit they're coming in and they're crying and they're distressed and they're complaining versus coming in and having a, a set of two or three problems that they want to talk with. And you just go through and you work through those 
um, problems. So how you present yourself to, to your providers makes a big difference. And it's actually part of um, pain-based cognitive behavioral therapy. In most of those programs, there's a module or a chapter on communicating with your healthcare providers, communicating with your family members and friends. So you do need to be heard. People need to understand that you're um, in pain, but if you just flip it around, again, I think almost everyone knows if it can be, if this can be communicated in a way that's more explaining than complaining, it's more likely that person is gonna try to be helpful to you rather than sort of try to run away because it's you know not fun for any of us to hear someone just complain. Okay. Uh, do you see pain showing up differently across gender or different ethnicity demographics? Women have more pain than men. Uh, all chronic pain conditions are about one and a half to two times more common in women than in men. Certainly these nosoplastic pain conditions are probably more like two times more common in women than in men. They, they're, they're particularly skewed uh, with respect to sex differences. Uh, and we also know the different, um, that socioeconomic factors um, in, in large population-based studies are um, risk for pain. Poorer people um, get more pain than wealthy people. Um, I mean, that's true of a lot of diseases that social economic factors uh, you know, make people more likely to get cardiovascular diseases and diabetes, but that's true of pain as well. So, you know, we know that those are, you know, both can be sort of risk factors being uh, female, uh, having lower income. And uh, we also know the different ethnic groups or races um, have more pain in there. And in particular, they're, they're more stigmatized. So that's been well demonstrated that the care that a black um, individual with pain gets is entirely different than a care that a white individual with pain gets. Um, the black individual won't get as many of the sort of expensive treatments as the white individual, even if they're equally affluent, uh, because there are unconscious and conscious biases amongst our healthcare providers where, um, again, even wealthy black people don't do nearly as well as wealthy white people with respect to their pain care because of these um, biases that we have in our in our healthcare systems and in our providers. So all of the, yeah, your question was loaded, the, all, all the above, the, the uh, sex and gender and race and socioeconomic factors do play a role um, in chronic pain. Yeah, it, and it's somewhat intentionally loaded, right? It's the, the I think a lot about uh, the stories I hear from women that for many years, and I think we're getting better at it. I went to see one and I got the, uh, get over your anxiety. There's nothing on the x-ray. And I always think of that as like a moment. And that's why I get out of bed in the morning now to like try and help people change that. And like understanding different people's, uh, pain and it comes in different forms. So, uh, and I think that is the research shifting to look more at, uh, in general, more inclusive in the demographic set when there's research going on? Absolutely. The, the National Institute of Health in the last five years has been extremely uh, aggressive um, about mandating that, that anyone that does clinical patient-oriented research, uh, you know, 
does a way better job than we have historically about including individuals of color of, in, in underrepresented groups into our studies. Um, and the good thing is they didn't just mandate this, they actually have given funding for it. And so this has made a big difference. Our group in particular, I would just say a world of difference in the last two or three years where we now have a whole unit in our research group. Um, uh, we call it the health equity core, but these are individuals that are developing partnerships um, in some of our local communities of color. Um, and that after a while, after we develop these partnerships, then we ask individuals from these communities to participate in our research, but we do it in that way. So it doesn't appear as though we're just sort of flitting in and wanting to use them as research participants, because that's not at all the case. So um, again, I think all of us um, have learned a lot about what's called sort of community-based participatory research and about the need to make certain that our studies um, are inclusive um, of, of all individuals, all types of individuals. Good. I like to see it heading that way. Uh, I think there's more and more emphasis on that, particularly on government funding uh, that I've seen just in projects I've worked on. Uh, so I guess that brings up the next question, right? And we kind of touched on this, but advocacy and self-care. Uh, if you're someone, and I probably, this is the third time we've talked, I've, I've asked this, but if you're someone who does feel dismissed and you're part of one of those uh, groups that aren't traditionally, haven't traditionally been the typical uh, patient that the, a lot of the research is based on, how do you advocate for yourself? Uh, I don't know. I've never been, I'm, I'm a privileged white male. So I don't, I actually don't know how to answer that question. Uh, um, okay. I, I, guess I, 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 I don't try to teach Lamaze classes and I don't try to answer questions that I really have no, um, you know, experience or knowledge about. And, and, and I completely understand that um, I have, I, I have led a privileged life. Um, and because of that, I'm, I'm not the best person to um, ask about things like that because I haven't had to experience any of those things myself. I have to compliment the humility there. And like that, that is, um, it's impressive because I think I wasn't expecting it, but I think that's great that you, you're thinking that way. And I will say I, I have had a lot of privilege too. Um, but I've also felt like sometimes as being a woman through this journey and listening to other women, very similar uh, to what you're talking about is there's different uh, biases as we go through this. Big question, pain management or pain in general, balancing that with day-to-day -day responsibilities. Is there anything you'd give in terms of advice? Uh, and I know you said activity, um, not necessarily exercise, uh, but how does somebody that's in pain get through making sure they are able to show up as a parent or show up at work or the different things in their lives that aren't related to the, the can't, the pain can't get in the way, I guess. How do you balance? Do you have any thoughts there or advice? Again, it, it is difficult because especially the non-pharmacologic therapies, people with chronic pain 
you know, look at you like you're silly when you're a provider, when you suggest, you know, that they do this, that, or another thing, and that might take a half hour, 45 minutes out of every day because they don't have an extra half hour, 45 minutes um, in the day. The one thing I would say, though, is that um, often you, what you find if you're a chronic pain patient and you try some of these non-pharmacologic therapies, when you find one that works, that half hour that you do that, it gives you uh, an hour or an hour and a half of extra time during the day where you're functional. Um, and so there, there does tend to be sort of like trade-offs where it's not always like a, like the, the it's a single pie, uh, you know, and you're pulling slices out of it. it. It is often the case that if you invest some time into a non-pharmacologic therapy, it'll give you back some time with respect to being feeling better and 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 being able to do more things you want to be able to do when you find a non-pharmacologic therapy that works often what you find is that time you invest in doing that every day gives you back more time where you're actually functional during the day is that a lot of chronic pain patients will have large portions of the day where they're not able to do very much and they're not very functional and so what happens often when again when you I'll, I'll phrase it as an investment because I think that's a way that people need to think about it is you have to invest some time to try to get some time back um, and, uh, and to get some function back and to get your life back. And one of the things I would strongly recommend that uh, providers and patients do is really in order to motivate you to try to do some of these things that we've been talking about, that you focus on functional goals. Like, you know, that we used to think that it was somehow motivating to ask someone, you know, that came in with a pain score of six out of 10, like, you know, what would you need to do to get to a pain score of three out of 10? And that's, and it turns out that that's silly. That's not motivating at all to a patient. But if you tell the patient, why don't we set as a goal, you tell me what you, what you can't do now because of your pain that you would really like to do. Maybe it's hug your child, maybe it's play nine uh, holes of golf, maybe it's this, that, or another thing, but really focus on wanting to attain some functional goals that are important to you personally. And, and, and in that way, that then it becomes worth the investment and time to try some of these new non-pharmacologic therapies because yeah, I want to do that, you know, to play golf. I don't want to do that to lower my pain score by two points. That doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Uh, I, and I think we have to, there's very immediate benefits that I think people see. And then there's also this, right, learn to love the long term. <laughs> and when you talk about an investment, I think for a lot of people, that's what, you're, what we're, right, we want short-term gains and long-term results. Well, with, uh, yeah, in the U.S. in particular, we like quick fixes. We like um, most chronic pain patients would far prefer that this is that their pain just goes away because of a surgical procedure or a new drug or a new gadget. Um, and I wish that that usually happened, but those things end up, you know, almost always being sort of false promises. Is that, and when people are are wanting everything to be the quick fixes. They then they get too much surgery, and surgery makes them worse. Or they get on an opioid, and and, and an opioid makes them worse. And um, the the one thing that I think is really important to um, 
to get patients to understand is the type of treatment you end up getting for your pain is in large part determined by the kind of doctor you go to for your pain. If you go to a surgeon uh, with pain, eventually he or she will probably do surgery on you just because you're so insistent that, that you want them to make your pain better, that that's all they do. That's they, they have a hammer and that, that they're gonna use it in everyone. That's the tool they know how to use. If you go to a, a, a clinic, you know, that's run by, um, you know, an anesthesia trained pain person that you know, mainly wants to do injections. It's, it's 80% uh, of the treatment that you get is predetermined by the doctor you go to see for your pain. If you go, if you go to someone that's trained in integrative medicine, you know, they're, the first thing they're going to offer is Tai Chi, um, acupuncture, meditation, yoga, they're not going to give you a drug first. So, so I, I think people need to understand that is they think that they're more helpless than they really are with respect to the pain treatments that they receive. Um, it actually, much of the pain treatment you receive can be predicted by the kind of doctor or healthcare provider that you choose to see for your pain, because they'll do what they're trained to do. Yeah, I'd never really thought of it that way. You made me speechless for once. Uh, so in wrapping up here, this has been amazing. Uh, anything you see emerging that's promising that's not mainstream these days? Or what are you excited about for the future in pain management? Well, of course, I hope for, you know, better drugs and and better, you know, gadgets. and But actually, one of the things that I think is most promising is getting these non-pharmacologic therapies that we had grants and studies to get to people, but trying to figure out how to get them to people that we couldn't see in person. And lo and behold, we found that there's a tremendous number of these therapies that if you just have like a health coach, you know, um, yeah. you can teach people how to do acupressure and yoga. I mean, there's so many different things that we can do with just a single Zoom visit or a single um, a website or an app. I would highly recommend we have a website called pain guide, all one word, P-A-I-N-G-U-I-D-E.com. It's free, we don't get any money for it. We use philanthropic support to develop it. But if patients go there, there's a tremendous number of things that we teach them to do, self-management techniques, and or um, down, they can download MP4 files to, for relaxation and meditation and things like that. But our group and a lot of research groups are putting a lot of that information out there in websites and apps and things like that in the hope that patients can directly then access that information and get um, access to a lot of these non-pharmacologic therapies that we used to think, you know, you had to go see someone, you had to go do this and insurance didn't cover it and everything. So a lot of the grants we write now, we're bundling a bunch of those interventions together and we're just saying like, Mrs. Jones, in order, if you, you know, we're, we're offering six of these different kinds of therapy that I've been talking about, non-pharmacologic therapy. And in order to be in our trial, you just need to be willing to try three of the six things next year. Um, oh, are you willing okay. to do that? And, and it, but instead of like studying them one at a time or it's more bundling them and realizing that, you know, often people are, are having to, you know, sort of 
I don't know, you know, if, if you are the one that needs a, like a little bit of yoga plus um, drug A plus some physical therapy, or if you need a little bit of acupressure um, plus drug B, but um, chronic pain patients are different. And the um, if, if they don't keep trying new treatments, then they get in ruts. They, they get and they get discouraged and they get, um, you know, they, they start to feel as though they're never going to get better and they're hopeless and helpless and things like that. So our, our job as providers is largely to encourage them, motivate them. There is hope. These, these especially these non-drug treatments actually work better than we ever thought they would. Um, and so, you know, try them. They do, they come, please try two or three new therapies this next year. And I doubt you're going to be in the same sad shape that you are right now if you are in such shape as a chronic pain patient if you try three new non-pharmacologic therapies you've never tried before because as are one of them will work well enough that you incorporate it into your day-to-day -day routine and forevermore you'll be better because of that i think that's a lovely place to land this i you're making me want to put a challenge out to like the community of let's all pick three things and try them and see what works. <laughs> uh, do it. Do it. Do, yeah. that be like, it. It's better than the ice water challenges or some of the other stupid <laughs> things people do. So uh, no, I, I mean, I, I did. I, I was quoted in Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times quoted me a month or so ago. He wrote a really good article on pain. And that was the quote there is that I in, in that he put in the New York Times is I, I don't know which of these is going to work in you, but if you try three of them, from a list of 15 or 20 non-pharmacologic therapies now that the evidence base has really increased that they help many people with chronic pain. Statistically, yeah. one of them is going to help you. One other, and you know, you'll be a lot better because of it. Yeah, and generally, right, like great change doesn't come from one thing. It comes from the sum of many small efforts. Uh, and I think that's what you're you're talking to in terms of the long run and yeah, no, that's, I love the idea of picking a few and trying them. So like we have a study in low back pain that's entirely um, uh, Zoom-based, you know. And oh, great. Yeah, so, uh, and more and more of our, our uh, you know, of, of the group of studies that we have, more and more are these pragmatic trials, um, you know, where, where we do them and, and people could be anywhere in the world because usually the, there's an initial Zoom visit, and then after that, people are filling things out on a website. Um, but they're, you know, they're not having to come in person. Excellent. All right. Well, I would love to thank you for being here with us, and uh, for your commitment to the work you do around helping people live a less painful life. I think this is, uh, for me personally, I think a lot of the listeners, it's really important work that you guys have that you've done in your career and like your teams have worked on over the last few years. So thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I don't do anything really without the, the, the we have an amazing team in the chronic pain and fatigue research center. So I'm really proud of the work we do and it's a good fight. I'm, I'm really, I, you know, I, I like fun, uh, fighting for the underdog. So uh, me too. Yeah. So anyway, we're, we're we enjoy the work we do. And, and um, again, I, we really want to, give hope and, and encouragement to people with chronic pain, because, you know, there, there is, there, there should, they should feel hopeful. There's 
a lot of new things to try. Yeah, agreed. Thank you. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.